1: This episode is brought to you by Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit podcast network, where the Andrews family brings the great ideas of Western literature to bear on the life, art, and culture of our modern world. Look for Bibliophiles, that's Bibliophiles with an F, wherever you get your podcasts, or find curriculum materials, online classes, and book clubs at CenterForLit.com. Hello, I'm David Kern.
0: I'm Heidi White.
1: And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, a book that for some of you seems to be becoming increasingly more appealing and for others of you seems to be curing you of that incurable love of reading. Uh, So we're going to dig into the uh, second quarter of the book or so. We're going to finish right about the time they're trying to cross the river. We get the chapter on uh, Jewel and the horse. That's kind of the end of this section. So uh, a lot has happened. A lot of complicated images are dropped into these passages. Lots to talk about. Before we do that, though, Tim, I've got an important question for you. Heidi, I'll, if, you, if you'd like to address this question as well, you may, but let's um, let, let's just give Tim the floor on this first. Tim, this Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. Yes, it is. And for the 1% of our listeners who care about sports, I feel like we should just address the facts mm-hmm. that, that this, is, mm-hmm. this is a big day in the sports world. And I'm just curious if you have a prediction. What are your thoughts on the Los Angeles Rams versus the Cincinnati Bengals?
2: I really like both teams. Like I think both teams are really, really fun to watch. I love both quarterbacks. I love... It's gonna be great, I think. My prediction mm-hmm. the Rams of Los Angeles will defeat the Bengals of Cincinnati by a score of twenty seven to twenty five. That is my prediction. Most valuable player will be Matthew Stafford, a graduate of, um, yeah, the University, predictable. of Georgia, University of Georgia. Georgia. Yep. I it's predictable, but sometimes predictable is true. <laughs> yeah. Broken clock and so forth. Right. Well, I would disagree with that metaphor. <laughs> okay, so 27 I get 25 really is an interesting score. Okay. It is an interesting score. I get excited about the Super Bowl because it's such a cultural event. Yeah. You know, you're kind of like, oh, I get to check in with the rest of – I get to check in with the rest of like America, and I get to figure out how little I have in common with it. <laughs> Honestly, over and over and over, I've had these reminders. I keep thinking like – I'm a normal American, and then I watch something like the Super Bowl, and I'm like, I am not a normal American. Good, what do you mean? And you go, I, how does the I mean, Super Bowl please.
1: reveal this for you? By the
2: commercials. Oh,
1: oh, I see. Like you don't think yeah, they're yeah, funny, but yeah, yeah. other people do.
2: No, I think sometimes they're funny. It's more. I don't. I don't know how to describe. You're it. You're
1: really not into Kia, Coca-Cola,
2: and uh, Taco Bell. Is, Is Kia going to advertise assuming, a lot the Super Bowl? Yeah, yeah. State Farm. State Farm for sure. Oh, my gosh. The State Farm commercials are just absolutely terrible. They're ubiquitous. so terrible. And they're ubiquitous, <laughs> which, yeah. Whereas, like, um, the Geico ads and <laughs> what's the other insurance company? Allstate? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, He's like uh, the general?
0: The mayhem guy? I <laughs> the like mayhem guy? That was okay. Allstate, wasn't it? No, it's
2: the one with yeah. the the woman who. Oh my god! Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. progressive, flow. progressive. Flow. You're talking and about pro- flow. Flow. <laughs> I love flow, and I also I love the guy who coaches, um, you know, like thirty year olds not to become their parents. I, oh, those are really funny. I love yeah. those guys. Are so I, yeah. Those are so yeah. good. Those are so great. Like so I'm going to kind of cautionary
0: kinda, tales for me when I go to the grocery store.
2: They are. Okay. So I'm going go to tell manager. you a story Jim over in the, in the, in the deli yeah. is so helpful. Jim over in the deli is doing a great job. And I'm like, I've done that. I have Pull done to that the right. thing. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Yeah. The one that got me was, um, they're talking about all the pillows on the couch, like <laughs> yeah. pillows so deep that you can't see any place to sit mm-hmm. on the couch. And mm-hmm. I was sitting on my mom's couch when I saw that. And she is the worst offender I'm really throwing my mom into the bus here. And she said, I don't get that one. And I said, Mom, too many pillows on the couch. I don't and get you just look, that one. I just love look surrounding me. Yeah, right,
1: right. I am buried wow. in throw pillows. In throw pillows.
2: Maybe I have more in common with America than I thought I did.
1: Yeah, well, well I'm glad, I'm, I am glad I... we had this conversation, though. Yeah. yeah. Hey, okay, so Heidi, uh, would you like to address the Super Bowl?
0: I would like the Bengals does. to win because I think they have the best helmets in the whole NFL.
2: Oh, they do. Don't they?
0: Those are great. They're no. great. They no. have great helmets. No. Yeah. No. Yes. And no. I feel like in a fight, a Bengal would beat a Ram for sure.
2: Mm. I don't know. Rams mm. are mean.
1: But also, if you they if you get mean, into a fight with a ram, they are not as mean
0: as a Bengal tiger. If, if you get in a that's fight with I'm a saying.
1: ram, you're on like a cliffside where the ram where the ram is on his own turf. What kind of ram is like in the jungle? You are talking about yeah, a, jungle but a, <laughs>
0: a, jungle a jungle ram? that's a very oh,
1: yeah. a jungle ram. A jungle ram. Well, so, in, in what situations are Bengals and Rams getting in fights? Like the the I mean the Bengal Super Bowl, right? So, well, right. Besides I the one with the human be beings.
0: The well, I mean. I mean, at least it's not the Washington Football Team, right?
1: Well, except they're now the Washington now commanders. The commanders. Yeah,
0: what they're a commander. terrible name! The
1: Cleveland Cleveland Indians are now the Guardians, and the um, Washington Football Team are now the Washington Commanders. Which
2: terrible! I don't understand. We don't need to Washington keep talking about this. The football this, team was kind of great, but okay, there, was yeah, we'll there was a hilarious
1: there uh, was a hilarious thing going around online when that name came down, and they were like. So is the short name for the Washington Commanders going to be the Commies? It's
2: like, Ooh, what do you shorten Commanders to? The Washington <laughs> D.C. Commies, the Commandos? In a throwback <laughs> oh, to the party. Like oh, one letter a conspiracy
0: less. Conspiracy theory <laughs> waiting to be released on the Daily Wire. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Happening exactly. Okay, well, let's talk about As I Lay Dying. Um, enough Super Bowl talk. Oh, did you figure out, Tim? I think you may have addressed this on the Patreon episode, but did you figure out what? You're gonna
2: wear.
0: Uh, it's your forthcoming. Question.
2: In an effort to drive traffic to our Patreon <laughs> feed, yes, I did. Uh, yes, I did. All right, well done. We didn't and even. And you'll that.
0: find out on the latest Anna Karenina Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm.
2: exactly, mm-hmm.
1: exactly.
0: Which David will have to listen to because he wasn't there.
1: Well, I did. Right. I actually did listen to it. I just wanted to make sure I know what you said. I
2: right.
0: had
1: the inside information right that the
2: patreon people have access to because okay. you listen to our patreon feed which has subscription rates as low as two dollars a month for those who want to support the show and as high as dollars as a as high month. as you <laughs> want to go yeah
1: Te- technically
0: that's true yeah. take it
2: true
1: okay let's talk about as they lay dying now i've got four topics of conversation four entryways into the conversation how are you okay do you need to address something
0: no, it's just my husband's home and I don't know why. Oh. So.
1: <laughs> she kept looking over her least shoulder. Got and like, anytime someone's looking over their shoulder, you gotta like address it. Like, she that looks she true. a little nervous. And, and
0: you're not wrong. It's not like. <laughs> a ghost or anything, but I like, I don't, it's a mystery, but I am Why a professional. Home and so I'm 100% a hundred percent all in on the okay. conversation. All right. All right? right. Great.
1: Okay. Cause, cause one thing that this podcast guards real tightly is this professionalism. Okay. Uh,
0: professional. we have, yes. I
1: have four topics of conversation four entryways into conversation. Uh, three of them are proper questions. One of them is, um, well, I'll just, just address it this way. Heidi, you, uh, in, our, in our group text yesterday, we were briefly chatting about the very famous one sentence chapter in this book. "My mother is a fish," says Varnum. you in that chat, that text thread said something to the effect of, "You're having, you're you're getting a lot of delight. You're having the best time in reading this novel, encountering it, um, enjoying, um, dis- deciphering, discovering the way the book is." Put together, I'm going to see if I can find the actual text. Um, you said, "quote It's been a while since I've taken such pleasure in writing and structure in writing and in writing and structure in a novel." Something to that effect. Do you? Uh, uh, what do you mean by that? Like, uh, why is this standing apart for you? You put it in in some pretty. Um, I was going to say strong dramatic, terms. elevated, elevated strong terms. Yeah, you yeah. said it's been. A, I mean, we've read a lot of good novels on this show. You read you read all the time. You read many, a lot of many, stuff that you love, and you said it's been a while since you've taken such pleasure in the writing and structure mm-hmm. in the novel. So what what's what's this book doing for you that that's just you're getting so much delight from?
0: Well, it's no secret that I like very high quality things. People <laughs> make fun of me for being bougie all the time, and I own it because I like seeing masters at their craft, whether it's sparkling water or a great book, and I. I mean, Faulkner has all of the reputation as one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest, but definitely one of the greatest American novelists. And I I haven't read Faulkner for a long time because I, I think I, other than short stories, which give me the same sense of pleasure, and I read those often, but I haven't read a novel by Faulkner in many years because I have this perception of him as very depressing, which is kind of, which is true. That's fair. And I'm not always... Just, like, going around looking to reread kind of a difficult-to-read depressing <laughs> yeah. novel. Yeah. Um, but which I... Which
1: depressing, weird novel can I read today?
0: Like, which, which like, really hard to read and will make me feel terrible about life novel can I read today? Just, like, <laughs> with my sparkling water and my avocado toast. Um, but I... I'm, I'm repenting of that. I feel like I just need to go and read, reread Faulkner because he's so good. He deserves every accolade that has been given to him. This novel is just like watching Michael Jordan slam dunk. Like it's amazing. Everything about it is nearly perfect. Like it's flawless. And I'm, I'm just reveling in that. It's what I'm reading it just like, it's for me, it's like very relaxing. I, I kind of mm. like, the kind of person I like to fill in gaps a lot like if someone forgot to make a salad I'll go make a salad right but it's like so refreshing to me and relaxing and just like lovely to to just let a master do his work and I'm along for the ride and have nothing to contribute I'm just sitting at his feet that's how I'm feeling about this novel
1: and jump in at any point but Heidi I'm being except, effusive. Tim, jump in that. at any point, except right now when I'm about to ask a follow-up question. And <laughs> right. then after that, you can <laughs> subsequently jump in whenever you want. So you you mentioned in the text that I just mentioned, the idea of like structure, how you're taking a lot of mm. delight, a lot of joy in sort of recognizing the structure that's happening here. Can you be more specific about that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like mm-hmm. What Fewer y-
0: adjectives, more specificity. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, well, can you just like on the surface, the structure is woman dies, Family following her, keeping her, trying to keep their promise to her, takes her to her home place to bury her. River gets in the way, inner turmoil, all presented through various individual points of view. Like that's the sort of overarching structure that we all recognize. Simple plot. So for you, then getting deeper into that, what is it about the structure that is so compelling beyond that like simple, overarching, Uh, obvious stuff?
0: It is how, yeah, it is how the structure serves the uh going underneath the surface of what's actually happening like you said the plot is very simple Mm -hmm. uh but what he's doing is not he's not really he's not just telling the story of a family trip to jefferson to bury their mom like he's he's commenting on so many levels of american society on individual characterization on just the process of writing and storytelling itself Uh, and and he's doing i i think what i mean by the structure is the uh how each of the chapters is beautifully written uh precisely written even though it doesn't feel precise because it's stream of consciousness but it is little things buried in there like even the um that gruesome scene when we find out that Vardaman has taken the auger and drilled holes in his mother's face right like that's it's written into like the middle of a paragraph from a character <sighs> who's uh, not even part of the family and and it's you you could miss it. You could blink and miss it. But it's so important. Um, but it's it's so brilliantly structured because we get these like layers of the narrative that are telling this very simple plot, but also going underneath the surface into the psychology. Uh, and and as you said, David, the pacing us as readers like forcing us through the uh, through the fact that reading this novel kind of feels like wading through mud, right? Um, like you can. See the other side, and you you want to get there, but you're you you just think you're going to be able to walk across, like walk through the wade through the river, but instead it's like all muddy on the bottom, and it makes you walk slowly. Um, that is brilliant. And another thing, the choices that he makes as a storyteller to put different parts of the story through the eyes of different characters. And in so doing, you see it reveals the character, but also reveals the plot and also reveals the nature of other characters. Mm -hmm. So again, there's these multiple layers of narrative that are very psychologically rich and very brilliantly structured. So you have like this depth of theme and narrative and psychology and characterization along with this like very precisely written beautiful writing that forces those for, kind of forces us to pay attention to storytelling itself, which is one of the whole points of the book. So I love yeah. it. I love yeah.
1: it. So like, uh, you know, you get Darrell who mm-hmm. is telling a lot of, he's revealing a lot of the narrative points and then we're also learning about him, but then he'll use that phrase. Like he'll describe Jewel as wooden, which can be, can describe him physically, but also seems to be revealing something about Jules sort of persona towards the world. So I guess that's just an example of, of what you're saying, Tim, drop in.
2: One of the things that I've, I think the thing that I'm liking most about this book is the, um, the psychology of the different characters and how their inner thoughts reveal themselves sometimes kind of quite. Accidentally, I guess is the way of Hmm. saying it. Um, Which brings me back to this question that I have about the book as a whole: like, does it think that what is unknown to human beings is more of a driver than what human beings know about themselves? Um, I'm consistently intrigued by that, and I and I think that the answer to this book is what we don't know is really what drives us. there are these kind of like impulses that like push us forward and maybe only in retrospect do we really recognize this is what I was after. this is why I chose that action. I didn't really understand it at the time And and another thing that strikes me is that it, it seems like the the less educated characters, there's a contrast that I'm seeing between those characters and maybe some of the older characters who have educated themselves or maybe like a little bit better off financially. Those latter characters, older, better educated, um, a little bit wealthier. They tend to string their thoughts together into a much more cohesive, logical narrative. That tends to loop a lot less. So, the characters who are really kind of stumbling, that don't have a whole lot of education, they're so repetitive. They kind of circle back to things. And I think everyone in the book repeats themselves. Mm -hmm. There's kind of, I think Faulkner's kind of catching on to something about like. Human conversation and uh, you know self narration that we we repeat ourselves, but those you know who are a little bit more sophisticated seem to do it a lot less. I was struck by the character of Samson, who I think this is the first time in this section is the first time that we. Have he's met the farmer him. by the river, right? Um, and he seems like he's fairly well to do. Maybe he's not rich, but he's he's doing better than the family who have been following up to this point in the book. Um, And his story is almost straightforward, good old fashioned narrative. One thing happens and it's followed by the next thing and it's followed by the next thing. Mm -hmm. And his thoughts are um, fairly neatly organized, even when he's talking about his wife, and he doesn't understand women, he's still articulating it in a way that is like coherent and logical, you know? Yeah, almost like it's from a different book. It is almost like it's from a different book. And I think Darl is that way, but not, Darl is kind of like this middle character. He seems like he's got the education, he seems like he's got the vocabulary of a very educated man. And in some ways, his narrative moves straightforward, linearly, logically in time. But in some ways, he also does that thing where he cycles on things and he breaks the timeline and he shifts backwards Mm -hmm. and he imagines forwards. So I've become really interested in what Faulkner is trying to convey there. And I'm going to put something forward. I don't, I I kind of, I don't feel really confident about it, but that's what this show is for is to kind of like, (laughs) put forward theories that you're kind of hashing out. Um, in, in the classical education world, this, this podcast kind of grew out of the classical education world. There's a big emphasis on logic as a thing kind of external to us. The rules of logic are external to us. And I think for good reason. Um, I think the rule, the, the rules of logic are an attempt in some way to kind of reveal like a deep structure about the world. But there's the other part of it, which is we are kind of logicked into logic in the same way that we are loved into loving and, um, you know, embraced into embracing, like all of these things are kind of mirrored. Our internal ability um, is a result of the things that we have received. And so I just the kind of um, repetitive illogic of some of the characters to me is an indication of how extremely difficult their circumstances have been. It's almost Mm -hmm. like, it's almost like logic is a luxury in this book and linearity is a luxury in this book. Those Mm -hmm. who have who do not have the sort of luxuries that the three of us enjoy really struggle with kind of things that we might consider essential or basic things like logic and linearity. And I am not so sure that these characters, that they're essential for these characters. They have not received something. They've been deprived of something and it's messing with their ability to kind of put one foot in front of the other conceptually.
1: Do you mean that the characters are incapable themselves of being logical?
2: No, I I think that they have it seems like they all have the capacity but that capacity has not been nurtured in a way that um would would reward the nurturing. Hmm. Yeah, I I just I'm assuming um, that they all have the capacity. Unlike, I can't remember the name of the the mentally handicapped boy in *The Sound and the Fury*, but he probably because of the way he was born, he does not have that capacity. He's limited in that way. I don't see that in any of the characters in this book. Yeah.
0: Benji was that? His, was that? Is that his name? It is Benji. Yeah. Benji. It is okay. Benji. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I th- I think. In the absence of that external form of logic that you're talking about, one thing that I think Faulkner is exploring to magnificent effect in this book is then the internal form of logic that they develop uh, within each individual person. And then within their family and within the larger community that they've kind of developed through their own experiences in the absence of an external form um and that and and tracing that has been just a really I think like beautiful and transforming experience for me even like there's this novel just is I can't believe I didn't like it the first time I read it um it just shows how young I was I guess and immature and um I don't know why, but anyway, they having to trace well, the internal don't like system, right? Like, well, and that's, yeah, that's true, but I think that it's objectively good and I'm going to land on that. And then I think it's, it's forcing me in a good, good way to trace Empathy throughout every single one of these characters and having to work hard to understand them. In mm. other words, this novel would not develop empathy if it was easy to get into the heads of these characters. It's in yeah. fighting for it that I think the goodness lies. And I saying, would... What is this woman? Do we doubt? Like the way Darl talks about her, the way she sexualizes herself, the way that other people do, even her own brother, who's a good man, like it forces you to think about women, right? And and all of these things that are that that's just one example of multitudinous opportunities for us to look at these characters and try to love them the way that Faulkner is asking us to without even making them likable. That's what I find so brilliant.
1: The language itself participates in that too, because it has its own particular logic. Like you have Mm -hmm. to, in terms of the way the sentences are structured even, or the way they'll be like, euphemisms or aphorisms or like just unique turns of speech that have their own particular logic to them that you have to, that are, that are not terribly familiar to the average reader currently living right now. Right. Like maybe people who lived in, you know, rural Mississippi where Faulkner lived would have heard similar things but that, that speech that forces you to slow down, that forces you to consider its own logic, that's like the mirror to what you're saying there. The, the, so the right. sentences themselves are asking us to be empathetic, I, I suppose is the best way of putting that, but to consider I agree. the logic and I of I think,
0: it. yeah, I think you're right, David. And I think to go back to the question of like my immaturity as a reader, I I think that Faulkner is hard to read. He is hard, and so to say this isn't my favorite way of reading. It's really difficult to me. I don't have time for this or whatever right now. That, it's hard, therefore I it's
1: ex- not good.
0: Yeah, like or no, no, no. I, I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you're, right. if you've started, I'm speaking to our listeners that like, if you started to read this book and you're like, I just don't like it. Like that's fair, right? You, Faulkner. But the thing is, is Faulkner isn't asking us to like it. Right. And I happen to like it. Mm-hmm. But in looking back on myself as a high school reader, reading this in my honors English class as a junior, I might have been too young for it. And that might have been why I don't like it. I think high school I shouldn't wasn't read this willing book. to make the effort to try to fight through it. Right. I kind of do, too, David. And I but I think as adults with a fully developed capacity for empathy and um, uh, we it's worth fighting through the language to get to that experience. But I don't think it's immature. I I think I spoke too soon and maybe came across judgmentally. I don't think it's immature to say, I don't like it. It's the same thing. I've compared this novel to wine before and I'll do it again. It's the same thing as like, if you first start drinking wine, you're going to like the cheap stuff and you have to fight to like, like an old Bordeaux, right? Because it has, because you have to develop the taste for it. You had to develop a framework for it. You have to develop in a sense, a logic for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now that I have, I'm like, I can't believe the old me didn't like this, but that's probably disingenuous because I can believe it because looking back, I'm like, I didn't, I didn't have the tools for that. Faulkner's way down the road. He's an old Bordeaux. So in saying that, if, if there are listeners out there who are like, well, I don't like it. So I mean, it meant to read reader. No, of course not because it's hard. It is hard. What I'm saying is that it's worth fighting through the language because the language is serving that development of empathy, that theme, that exploration of American culture and of individual psychology. And I think it's worth it. <laughs> so thanks for letting me make that caveat. <laughs>
2: Go ahead, Tim. I'm glad you made that caveat because I think Heidi when I heard you say I think it was too immature for it. I wanted to say no you weren't. This book is really really hard. I actually I mean I completely agree with you David. This is not a high school reading. I
1: like I don't know it, it you have to have a degree of preparation. Like yeah. if they're if they've read a lot of Homer, a lot of Dante, a lot of King James version of the Bible, a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of like you know, a lot of stuff leading up to that, maybe some Joyce along the way, but it gets put into that canon that every AP English class has to read, right? right? Mm-hmm. And then, how many people do you talk to that read it in high school were like, yeah, man, love that book. That was awesome.
2: None, right? none,
1: people. nobody,
0: right? Yeah. Well, the pronouns are hard. Who is it? What is it? Who is she? Yeah. Like, what that, Trey, I remember, I remember sitting on my couch and like trying to figure out, even in this section that we were reading, like, wait, why is Jewel's mother mm-hmm. a horse and Varnum's mm-hmm. mother a fish? And I don't mm-hmm. get it. Oh, we'll and get to This that. book is stupid. So,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> that's-
1: would you say, though, so just to go back to this idea of the immaturity thing, I don't think you were saying that if you don't like it, no, it's an immature reading. Yeah. But would you say the, the idea is like, just because you don't like something doesn't mean that it's not good?
0: I, yes, That's kind I of am what you're saying. saying that. I am saying that, but I will say there's also a time that I don't, I also don't think that liking it means you necessarily equates to you thinking it's good. Like there are right. some people who don't like reading Faulkner and never will like it, but still can get to exactly the experience I'm talking about of appreciating it um, and delving into the characters and learning to develop that empathy. And um, so what I, what I do think still, and I will stand by as immature reading, is I don't get this book. Therefore, it's not good and it's stupid and the author shouldn't have written it Yeah, and I'm out. That is immature reading and yeah. I will stand by that. Yeah. And that's what I did until now.
2: <laughs> Go ahead, Tim. Well, I just um, want to come to 17-year-old Heidi's defense like is that is it really immature? Now we're having a conversation about like
0: my own empathy, students. which needs to develop, and my own humility. Maybe it's humility as well. But go
1: ahead. Well, also you set up to fail. Can you blame the kid who's set up to fail?
2: Right. right. See, I don't think you can. I don't think you can blame that kid. It seems like. Yeah, I I don't see the kid who fails to read and appreciate one of the more difficult books written in the twentieth century, one of the more difficult well written books written in the twentieth century. I don't think you can call that kid immature.
1: Except in as much as every kid that age is immature, and therefore you yeah, have you have to give yeah. them a chance to succeed. Like if but we're if maturity, playing basketball, maturity
2: maturity should be measured according to capacity. And, and there are very, very few 17-year-olds that have the capacity, have such a great capacity for empathy in reading at age 17 that they should be kind of like called immature if they can't handle this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, if Tim and I are playing basketball and we're on the same team and the basketball coach is like, you know what, David, let's put you down uh, on the block defensively. And we're going to let
2: against the guarding the tall guys. Yeah.
1: And we're going to let Tim kind of float on the wing because he's going to get steals. Yeah. Tim might get some steals, but then when I end up giving up seven straight hook shots to the guy who's six, six and 250 pounds, is it really my fault that he's doing scoring of that against me? Because I got put in the position to, to fail. Yeah. Um, It's, you know, that's the obvious sports sports, sports ball example. But the same thing happens in our classrooms and with our students all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you don't blame a student who can't lift, you know, 300 pounds. It, they're not, it's not a lack of, like, maturity. Okay. It's a lack of capacity.
0: Uh, right. Okay. But the immaturity comes in when we as readers say this. I can't lift 300 pounds, so therefore I'm not gonna try. lifting 300 pounds is stupid.
2: Yeah, right? I absolutely right. Like, it's absolutely stupid and right. bad, yeah. and it's therefore, a thing that, to do. Therefore, that weight shouldn't that- exist. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yes. And I do see readers doing that with Faulkner, and that is just in general. And and I, I think what so I still had a level of immaturity, even though the capacity was beyond me and it was asked too much of us, you know, at, to read it at age 17. Therefore I, I, I feel like what I could have even said, even then mm-hmm. was I don't get it yet.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't have the tools,
0: yeah. not this isn't good.
2: I remember my dad, when I was probably in college, I asked my dad for a book. Like I was starting to kind of like develop my mind and he gave me this book. You guys might remember this. It, it had a huge heyday in the '80s. The Closing of the American Mind by is Al, I think Alan. I thought you going to say Atlas shrugged. No, Dad, give me Dad, give me that one on a different occasion. Um, I can read the Closing of the Tim's American noted Mind. Favorite. Yeah, I can read the Closing of the American Mind now. But as a, whatever I was, 22, 23 year old, it was so far beyond me. It was so far beyond me. And it it kind of asked a certain, that I have a dexterity with everyone from Aristotle to Nietzsche and I just didn't. And I failed, but I never, the thing that like was really encouraging about that book was like, oh my goodness, there is a huge world out there a world of ideas. And if I train myself, I can go back to the closing of the American mind and I can understand it. I'll be able to understand that book someday. And that was so invigorating. Like I knew that my dad could read that book and understand it. And I was like, okay, that means that I can too. I'm going to do it. And that kind of approach I think we sometimes don't bring that kind of approach. I'm just saying what you are already saying, Heidi. We sometimes don't bring that approach to fiction because we think that fiction is so much the subject of subjective taste which sometimes it is. We have to grant that. But because we kind of confine it to the realm of subjective taste, we don't think with hard work, I can learn to appreciate this piece of fiction. We tend to think like, oh, it's not my taste. I don't like it. It's not It's not any good. It's not to my taste. It's not, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think to Heidi's point, I don't think that's true. You might not ever love it, but that doesn't mean it's dumb.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's let's just switch gears here a little bit because I want to talk about three particular moments that I feel like we should address They're In some ways they're kind of just images and I'll just tell you what those three things are that I think are a little confusing and be worth trying to dig into a little bit, try to get our teeth into one is my mother is a fish. And then the line Jules mother is a horse, which Darrell says, I believe then there is the Darrell's. Is was our contemplations right. on existence that like riddle that he's kind of putting out there, and then the third one is basically what I'm what I wrote down here. What's the deal with the buzzards? Because the buzzards keep coming up. At first, it just seems ominous, but then they keep it keeps coming up as an image. There's a buzzard in a barn. There's buzzards sitting. It looks like it's still in the sky. Right. Like keeps keeps coming up as an image. Um, let's do this. My mother is a fish thing first. Because I feel like I want to make sure we get that addressed. My mother's a fish. Jewel's mother is a horse. Um, so let's do it in those three particular orders. Because I feel like we can come back to the buzzard thing. The buzzard is a little more typical literary imagery, right? Like you'll find buzzards and things. You'll find the you know the rain. That's an image that we've seen in books all the time. The pathetic fallacy, that kind of thing. Even if we don't get too deep into it, we can point it out. And most of the readers are going to be like, "Oh yeah, oh yeah," I think I get a sense of that. My mother is a fish. Harder. So, Heidi, you called Mm -hmm. in our text thread that one of the greatest chapters ever written. My mother is a fish. Vardaman says, "Why do you say that?" Uh, And can you begin to unpack that? Uh, What's going on there?
0: So, one of the main preoccupations of this novel is The Question of Identity, uh, which fits very well within a story about the death of a mother right? Because the mother is, our mother is the beginning of all of our identities. Uh, It's our original home. uh, And, and that is, and, and where we come from, everything converges upon the mother as an archetypal idea, as well as an individual person in each of our lives. And so the death of a mother, and for those of us who've experienced this, including myself uh, and many of our listeners, it's a profoundly, shattering events, no matter what your relationship was like with your mother, because there's something existential that happens when you're unmoored from the mother figure. And so this, this Book is about an individual family and individual members within the family, and the individual inner life of each of those individual members in the family. And it's also about uh, mother culture, your motherland, uh, and just this kind of archetypal and existential contemplation of what it means to lose yourself through losing a mother. And um, and Darrell addresses this specifically when he says uses all those confusing sentences about ises and wases, right? Mm-hmm and Vardaman addresses this and uh, and carl uh, excuse me darl does it in a in a almost um what's interesting about darl is he he speaks for everybody but himself right so he doesn't mm. ever talk about what he's feeling um he only talks about what he sees in other people and what they are feeling uh and then he but when we do get a sense of what he's feeling it's when he's speaking very abstractly when he's saying things like i is and are and the differences between those things, which is this kind of confused, inner disoriented uh, and disjointed contemplation of the nature of identity and being. If my mother is gone, then who am I, right? What am I? Do I, do I even have an identity or a connection? Um, Because moms tend to be the center point of a family, right? And when a mother is gone, many family members drift apart because the mom is the convergent point for practical and for existential reasons. And so with Addy gone, that is the question. Who are we as a family and who am I as a person? Who is our country if unmoored from its beginnings? What is the origin? Right. So it becomes a very complex contemplation. Um, And with with Vardaman, what we have is this little boy, he asks the same question. Remember how he, he makes those strange statements about like, that's Jewel. Jewel is my brother, right? This is the same kind of question of identity mm. um, and and naming things and this kind of frantic holding on to what things are because with Addy gone, he feels so profoundly un- unmoored from himself and his family he doesn't know who he is or who who anybody is anymore. So he's repeating himself. So back to fish. The same day his mom died, he caught a fish and the de- and the fish died. So to this little boy without any kind of language or abstract understanding of death, he has a concrete experience of death that's double layered, once with the fish, shortly afterwards with his mother. And then Dewey Dell tries to cook the fish and all of his rage and anger and and fear and grief about losing his mom that he has nowhere to put goes into that fish. That's being cut up, chopped up, and bleeding in the pan, and then he attacks Dewey Dell for trying to kill it, right? Or trying to cook it. And so all of that, all of his grief is going into that fish. And so it makes so much sense then that he wants that that he equates his mother, his dead mom, with this dead fish. And and also, so there, so there's that. That's specific also on a more uh, m- more literary level a fish has all kinds of kind of symbolic meaning to it, right? A fish emerges from the deep. It can't be seen. It's sought after and elusive. When you're trying to fish for it, and you can't always find it. And so, uh, and and the, and water is very symbolic of death in literature um, and baptism and rebirth at the same time. Um, and so, it's kind of a confusing convergence point with water and then the things that emerge from water like a fish. And so, fish kind of holds that weight of symbolism throughout literature. Plus, becomes very specific and. In, in this little boy's life period. Anything else to offer, Tim? What did I miss?
2: You didn't I don't think you missed anything. I, I think it would be helpful. I'll read the section um that we're talking about, not my mother is a fish, but the section from Darl when he's kind of like this strange looping logic or illogic. So for me it's on page 80. It's the last page of the chapter um, in which Darl is speaking in a strange room, you must empty yourself for sleep. And before you are empty for, before you are emptied for sleep, what are you? And when you are emptied for sleep, you are not. And when you are filled with sleep, you never were. I don't know what I am. I don't know if I am or not. Jules knows, Jules knows he is because he does not know that he does not know whether he is or not. He cannot empty himself for sleep because he is not what he is, and he is what he is not. Beyond the unlamped wall, I can hear the rain shaping the wagon that is ours, the load that is no longer theirs that felled and sawed it, nor yet theirs that bought it, and which is not ours either. Lie on our wagon, though it does, since only the wind and the rain shape it only to jewel in me that we are not asleep." And since sleep is, is not, and rain and wind are, was, it is not. Yet the wagon is. Because when the wagon is, was, Addy Burden will not be there. Bundren will not be there. And Jewel is. So Addy Bundren must be. And then I must be. Or I could not empty myself for sleep in a strange room. And so if I am not emptied yet, I am, is. How often I have lain beneath rain on a strange roof, thinking of home?
0: I'm so glad you <clears> read that <throat> last sentence, right which ties that back to because, the fish honestly yes and the and the and the mother and the home mm-hmm. and origins and identity and this alienation from the self and the home, which comes through the loss of a mother
1: I think it's important too that it I, one of the one of the narrators ref- references that the coffin is clock shaped mm-hmm. because yeah. i think that that speaks to the death
0: and time
1: yeah that the the in and out of time the the questions of time and timelessness that are coming into the contemplation to the, to the use of the words is and was and the different ways that he uses those words sometimes as a noun or an adjective and sometimes as a verb in the same sentence you know, like the is becomes the was and the was changes its meaning in the same phrase or the same paragraph. And that's confusing. But it's also, if it's not confusing, is it true? That was That's what I was thinking about. Like if that was not a confusing contemplation, like if Faulkner had tried to set that out as like C.S. Lewis writing a logical treatise for his faith, is it True. Not that what C.S. Lewis did is false, but to contemplate time is an inherently confusing thing. Like, there is no way to dig into the contemplation of time and death within time and being outside of time and it not be throw you for a loop, right? Unless Tim's figured out a way.
2: No, I have not. <laughs>
0: the right. philosopher well, philosophers have written about this. for I me mean, and, and in a sense, reading that paragraph is like reading Heidegger. Like, there's—I was just—this is
2: amazing, yeah. Heidi. I'm just seriously thinking about Heidegger. This is such a Heideggerian section.
0: It is. It's just like reading Heidegger. It so really is. Even e- that's what he sounds like, and that's why nobody reads Heidegger. And um, <laughs> but people read Faulkner, right? And that I think is how a character Faulkner me. spread. Like, it's, it, it makes it concrete. And Tim, you brought up the point earlier about the external forms of logic versus the internal experience of life. And, and Faulkner in a way is saying, what, it's the same. It's the same for these people as it is for Heidegger.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They're all contemplating the same things. These people through grief, Heidegger in an ivory tower, which one is more compelling and human? It's Faulkner. <laughs> right, And that is why that that's why as I'm reading this novel with just this awe and wonder and like this is so good like, and this is so human because they're arriving at the same kind of contemplations of the meaning of life and purpose and through through kind of this sorted, difficult to sort through, like kind of ugly things ugly life experience it's just as profound and meaningful to them and so in a sense like the inner life of an uneducated poverty stricken uh human in this in southern in the south is the same exact profound experience as like a philosopher in an ivory tower it all gets to the same place and i think that's a lot of what faulkner is saying what if we humanize all of this
1: now i'm not a like a Heidegger scholar, like I that like I'm just as close to being Michael Jordan as I am to being a Heidegger scholar. Um, but me neither. But but didn't he have thoughts to say about like the notion of industrialization and and how it impacted like he, like the the sort of common man, the peasants, in in a way that probably wasn't terribly unlike Faulkner? Now they're contemporaries, right? Because Heidegger was. He died in like the fifties. They would have been writing, working at the same time. Like Heidegger, Heidegger is a World War II guy, right? Like during that era. So
2: his most famous book is called Being in Time, mm-hmm. 10 years, published 10 years before this book is published. So they're roughly contemporaries, S- so yes. contemporary.
1: So co- contemporary contemporaneous, but perhaps would have been something that Faulkner had read.
2: Maybe. I don't know if there was an English language translation Uh, of being in time by 37. Yeah, yeah. I sort of doubt it, actually.
1: Wait, so this was published in 30,
2: wasn't it? I thought it was published in 37.
1: Either way, roughly contemporaneous and probably he had read it. Roughly
2: contemporaneous. He's known for a critique of industrialism, but I think – What's I think the kind of similarity between Heidegger and Faulkner is that there is this um Heidegger does not agree that we are just these kind of like individual observers of the world, and our relationship to the world does not affect our capacity to know or that we are somehow not kind of like objects in the world, which is just sort of like a fancy way of saying that we are part of the world and the world does not just come to our inner selves unedited and unchanged. We see the world in the way that we have kind of like shaped the world. Um, I wish you could think of a really good example maybe an example that he uses, this may be a little bit helpful, is if you think about a hammer, when we are like, when we take up a hammer and we're going to drive a nail, we don't, when we take up the hammer and we have enough dexterity to drive the nail, we stop thinking about the hammer in our hand. And we think of the hammer as just an extension of us, right? Like I look at the nail head and I can drive down the nail with the hammer because I have just kind of absorbed the, absorbed the hammer as a tool that is an extension of me. And I think that's kind of Heidegger's way of thinking about things is that we are beings that are kind of thrown into the world and we are affected by the world mm. And we are affecting the world. And man, I see that all over Faulkner. My mother is a fish. Like if we're just an abstract observer of the world, that makes no sense at all. But developmentally, it makes a lot of sense based on what Heidi said. There's this kind of equation equating of... Um, the death of this fish that Vardaman caught and the death of his mother. He does not have the abstract capacity yet to kind of like make a distinction. He collapses those two things together. It's a very kind of Heideggerian way of viewing the world. And I'm really sympathetic with it. I say that and I must include caveat emptor. Heidegger wore the armband during World War II. That's the big critique of Heidegger, you know, and it's tempting to just be like, yeah, Heidegger, he was a Nazi. I don't think that's altogether fair, Um, but it is worth mentioning that Heidegger wore the armband.
1: I I mean, as the grandson of people who lived in Germany during World War II, uh, that's a complicated
0: complicated thing to
1: to discuss for just the average German person. No doubt. Um, My... Family spent, uh, you know, German history in the 20th century is complex. My, grand, my family spent a lot of time on the run during the war. And then afterwards they escaped into West Germany from, from Potsdam with Soviet soldiers chasing them. So it's kind of like, you know, that's a complex question and yeah. not an easy one to have a conversation on in 2019, in 2022 America. Um, there was somebody made an interesting comment on the Facebook page that I think is worth bringing up. They mentioned that reading this book can feel a little bit like uh, looking at a Picasso painting or some other work of modern art. So you're going to get lines like "My mother is a fish." Jule's mother is a horse. You're going to get these riddles from Darl, which I'm using that the is was are stuff. I'm just using that term loosely, but um, we get images like the buzzards and the rain and the bridge that's going out and the coffin stuck within time and all that kind of stuff, um, or shaped like a clock rather. What is there a way that you could help us well, we haven't finished the book we'll be able to do this again later but is there a way that this stuff can be synthesized that it can be sort of like brought together um, so it doesn't or, or maybe some ideas for how to approach these various images so that as you're reading it doesn't just feel like you're looking at a Picasso painting that you can't understand what he was trying to go for um, now you could do the, we could ask the same thing about Picasso paintings we could look at them in a very specific way but the point was, how do how can we bring these things together so that the experience is less uh, dissonant? Hi, Tim, do you have any thoughts on this? And then Heidi?
2: I think it's safe to read forward without understanding in the hopes that you will understand backwards. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, that's fair.
2: You know, like... Like you're the, not taking the whole the, a
1: whole painting in at one time when you're reading a book. Right. You're not seeing the whole right. canvas.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just, if you don't understand something, that's fine. There's a lot in this book that I don't understand, but I think kind of continuing to move forward and kind of checking back at those points that, that feel really confusing. My mother is a fish, is, was not, were was, you know, those sections become a little bit clearer, the deeper you get into the book.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Heidi, do you want to add anything to that?
0: Yeah. Um, so we, you know, I think that modern, uh, television and film has given us a little bit of a framework for this, you know, like when you're watching a movie with your kids and that movie opens up with like a confusing backstory and your kids are like, what's going on, mom, what's going on, mom, what's going on, mom. And you're like, give it a minute. Like Can it'll you come give clear. It a right. Like, like it's, it's, we don't know yet. Yeah. And like, that's, we don't know yet. They're doing that for dramatic effect. They're setting us up by giving us a stake in the movie. And we, and so we keep watching Like that is a bit of what Faulkner is doing with some of these images and symbols. And we're used to being able to read a straightforward linear narrative because that's how our minds have been trained to do it. And this one's not it's circular. It loops back. You used that word a couple of times, Tim. Um, It's, and, and, and it, things are unfold as they go, just like they do in our minds. We take something in as an image and it feels meaningless. And then later on we connect it with an emotion we have like Vardaman did with the fish. Um, And, uh, and then that emotion gives the thing a meaning. Um, And, and that's what's going on with Vardaman. And that's going on multiple ways across the, the novel. I would say in some Threads to trace are the thread of identity. What, uh, who, who are these people, and what is the society that they're living in? Um, and is there, is that identity ontological, meaning is it within them, or is it imposed, meaning are they made that way because of their circumstances? And and that's one of the. the Quite, that's philosophical like deeply philosophical questions that uh that Faulkner is wrestling with um through the eyes of these people um and so trace that thread of identity also trace the thread of grief um, and 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 that's what makes, I think, the question of identity compelling and not abstract within this novel, is that the question of identity is intrinsically tied with the grief that these individuals and this family is feeling at the loss of Addie. Hmm. And so don't lose the emotion that each of them is feeling. Trace that. Like, they're all grieving in their own way. For example, Jules' way of grieving is to be a jerk. He's so mean right now, he right?
2: He is so mean right now.
0: And he's, he's aggressive and attacking, um, but he's doing that because he's grieving. That's human. Like trace that. You know, like that, that thread of grief throughout each of the characters and the whole family system and the society they're living in. It's like concentric circles. It starts within the mind and then you move out to see how other people see them, usually through Darl's eyes, right? And then throughout there into the whole family structure and system and out from there into this, their little town and out from there into American society in general and out from there into kind of this universal contemplation of what it means to be human.
1: Reminds me of that chapter, the, the cash chapter. Which is one of my favorites, where he the last it says I the made it enumerated on the bevel chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, the yeah. one right before the fish. In fact, like literally the chapter before. He then he lists mm-hmm. thirteen reasons or way or you know re- basically thirteen reasons why he made it on a bevel. And for Cash, his response, if Jules' response is to be mean, Cash has this response to like try to create order, like he's trying to create yeah a sense of structure. He's trying to be precise with how he measures the the um the coffin and in a way he's trying to make sure that his mother's resting place is as good as it possibly could be. He wants to make sure that she doesn't it doesn't slip off the wagon, that it can endure the journey, all those sorts of things. But he also for him it's there's it's also for himself. It's also how he processes it. And so there's like the, the, you know so much of this is about how they experience things within the world and then also how they experience things inside themselves and that's how people operate, but it's also what makes us complex and confusing like even to our spouses and our siblings and our children and 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 so forth and ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I love that, that cast chapter for, for that reason, that it's speaking to what you're saying there, Tim, go ahead.
2: I was going to say, um, the section from Samson, when, um, he makes a couple of comments, he sees the girl Dewey Dell Mm -hmm. and I think he says a couple times, I wasn't looking at her like that. Right. Am I right? Wasn't it in that section? He's like, I wasn't looking at her like that. And the fact that he says it two times makes me think, wait, does that mean you were looking at her like that? Or does it mean that she, her reputation has kind of been made around the county, you know, like people know that she was. Or she's looking at him guy. like he
1: looked at her like that. And he's exactly, like, whoa, 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 exactly.' Whoa, I didn't do anything.
2: Right. And he has these, like, there's that great metaphor. If her eyes were pistols, I'd be gone already or something like that. Like she gives him some sort of a hard look. And it's, I think it's tempting on first read to say, she's looking at him for X reason or for Y reason or for Z reason. But honestly, we either might not know, or we might not know until later why she was giving him that kind of like, pistol like glare mm. which I, you know like I, I can just hear readers right now being like oh there's another thing that i had kind of have to hold without resolve like i don't know why she right you're it's a juggling act i don't know why she was looking at him like that and like their answer is no like maybe not until the second read or maybe not at all
1: well that's the thing is you're going to find different things each time you read it yeah that's kind of what makes it rereadable <laughs>
0: Yeah, what were you gonna say? Honey? That's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, Toll says Vernon Toll says the same thing. She was looking at me as if I was looking wanting to touch her. Uh That's, she also was looks, tall. That's what I was thinking about. Well, of, it's yeah. both of them though. Okay. This is my point. It's Samson and Toll and Peabody, which tells mm. you less about the men and more about Dewey Dell and her expectations of men and the way she's yeah. been treated by men, right? Yeah. And um this and, and all of those things become clues, which if you think about your own family, right? Isn't that the way it is? Right. You gather for Thanksgiving dinner, not just not even for mom's funeral, but for Thanksgiving dinner or for like Tuesday dinner. And there's all kinds of things happening in the room around that table. The way so-and-so is looking at so-and-so and and whether or not so-and-so had a fight with so-and-so or whether or not you're getting along with your spouse and whether or not you unloaded the dishwasher earlier. Like all these things are happening within a family that are complicated and overlapping and emotional uh, at all at any given time. Let alone a time like this, and that's one of the stories that this book is telling—that mm. about a family under in crisis. That is a mirror into other questions, and so again, reading Faulkner's hard. And so, I think if you're looking for those threads to trace, look for identity, look for grief, um, and uh, and and look for. Uh, like kind of the complex nature of what it means to be a part of a family and yet fully yourself at the same time.
2: Mm. I can I go on a little minor discursus. Is this
1: going to be like? Is this qualify as a close rant?
2: No, it won't call, because oh, there's okay. no there's no like heat or like frustration involved. When I was, Could you, would you um, like to do a close? <laughs> I, you're like, we need a little bit more close-rent material. I, I mean, I guess I could kind of like manufacture some <laughs> anger about what I'm going to say, but I'm just not like, I'm not angry I'm about not it. I'm not
1: actually worked up about this. This is just something I'm thinking
2: about. Right. I went to go see the P- Picasso Museum uh, in Barcelona hmm. when I was in my late 20s. And I had kind of like always liked Picasso, but I thought he was more of kind of like, he had a shtick you know, cubism. He had a shtick, the blue period. It was a shtick. But then I saw his portrait paintings of when he was, I mean, a teenager. So when he was 17, 18 years old, he did these portraits of teachers, his parents. They were incredible. Like not just pretty good, they were incredible. And so I thought, okay, all of his kind of the stuff that I thought was shtick happened later than this. And I thought, man, but this is not, this is a man who has mastered the fundamentals of painting, representational painting. Okay, another kind of similarity, I, I'm a big John Coltrane fan. And John Coltrane, for me, is just- Who one is of it? The masters, the, the jazz masters. But some of his stuff, like in the mid 60s, is Crazy Town. It's hard to listen to. It's discordant. <laughs> it's just like- What's the, the album that you were talking about? Sonship. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's just almost unlistenable. But then the one you love is? Oh, I love Supreme. That's right. And That's right. I love Supreme. Those yeah. are two. I mean, like- Just, just, we're, just if classic. we
1: want people want to go, you know, do a little dive.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you want to set the romantic mood over dinner, play Olay. And, and like, thank me on Facebook. It's just, oh my gosh, it's so good. Okay. But I think like in the in these great master's hands, they're like Faulkner. Faulkner can tell a straightforward narrative beautifully. Um, James Joyce, read Dubliners if you doubt that James Joyce is a great writer and like you will get over it in a hurry. Dubliners <laughs> is masterful, straightforward storytelling. And then later on, he gets into... Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses, and you think he can't write. He lacks the basic skill set. No, he does not. He was trying to press the envelope. I think Faulkner's trying to press the envelope. I think others have come along after Joyce, after Faulkner, Coltrane, after Picasso, and they've kind of mimicked the experimentation that those masters delved into but in lesser yeah. hands they just can't do it they're not masters well, I, I
1: think there's also a sense where with certain other people who near mastery they shave off the rough edges a little bit which make it yes. which makes which takes yes. it from being it makes it a little more palatable so like over yeah. time these experimentations become immersed into formal tradition if that makes sense right Right. And, then, and we become be,
2: like another tool that we right, can use. Right. And
1: we begin to know how to understand them. And, and as we understand them, they then understand how to use them and how to communicate within those that experimentation with audiences in a way that the audience can is more palatable. Yeah. I think that, yeah. that's I think it's the, like there's a whole big circle there, but that's another
2: I think you're right. That's just I a think, little caveat. I mean, I, I think Cormac McCarthy, everyone knows, is an absolute master. I think he absolutely benefited from the kind of yeah. experimentation in this book by Faulkner, and he refined it and altered it for his own uses. But there are passages in Cormac McCarthy that just sound straight up lifted from Faulkner's voice. He right. benefited. He benefited by following the master in that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you know, in some ways not unlike Shakespeare. What's that? Not unlike Shakespeare. Like Shakespeare's I think one of his great the reasons that he's lasted and why he's so great is because there were people that came before him, whether it was the Greek the Greek tragedies, the mm-hmm. writers of the Greek tragedies or early English plays or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And he's taking that and he's kinda of like synthesizing the ideas and the forms and making them like taking dramatic principles and, yes. you know, taking his education and the history that he knew and making it all experiential in a way that anybody in any age can gravitate towards, can can grab onto. Right. And that's right. why he is the great, the
2: greatest. Yeah. You know, yeah. him and Muhammad Ali. He and Muhammad Ali, the greatest.
1: Well, we should start wrapping this up. Heidi, do you uh, want to add anything here? Do you want to talk about buzzards? Anything else you want to add before we drop off?
0: Oh, sure. I, I wanted to address the question of the horse, um, really quickly. We have oh, Jules' mother as a horse. Yeah, Jules' yeah. horse. There, that's a, we have the Vardaman's mother is a fish, and then Jules' mother is a horse, which is <laughs> a horse of a different color. Like it's, it's, it's this, a similar contemplation of the, of the mother and grief, but a very, a very different manifestation of it. Um, and so a useful uh, contemplation of it might be, how are they the same and how are they different, right? Um, and And so for our, our, our listeners this week who are reading, I, I think it's probably a bit complex. maybe we can talk about it more next week. But just that that question, if if Fardaman's mother is a fish, and if Jewel's mother is a horse, And we have kind of the backstory of both the fish that's been caught and the horse that's been earned. Right. Um, And, uh, and, and the weight of symbolism on fish over the centuries, along with the weight of horse and fish over symbolism and over the centuries that, uh, that, that's kind of the, the comparison of that is really fruitful, I think, and might be worth a Google search. Um, And then the question of the buzzards is buzzards are, I mean, they chase death, right? So they're, on, on the plot level, they Addie's body is decomposing and they are, and, and they're coming for her, right. Um, on the symbolic level, death is coming for all of us. right? And, um, and that is that kind of idea of being like chased or hunted or haunted is supposed to be part of the feeling of the story. Death mm-hmm. death it's not just that the buzzards are coming for Addie's rotting body, but that death is following all of us with its kind of dark wings and and ready to consume us um, the family in the story and then kind of all of and, and, and on a more universal level us. I,
2: and I think that go ahead Tim. No, go ahead David. I, I, I was gonna tell a little story you can wait for a second <laughs> okay.
1: I, I was just gonna say that I think. The dead fish and the, uh, you know the, the rain and the, um, the buzzards, all that kind of stuff is where you see the sort of gothic influences that Faulkner had up on him. So people have talked about how they love the 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 guy, they read gothic books a lot, you know. But this is he is highly influenced by the gothic writers who came before him, and I think those are in some ways stand the kind of things you'd see in a stand like if it's Poe or whoever it is shows up there. And so it's those are almost like things you can grab onto. I actually think that the horse thing is a clarifying image when combined with the fish thing. So if on first glance he says, Vardaman says my mother is a fish. And you're like, what in the world? And then the next chapter Darl says Jules' mother is a horse. And at first glance it seems like it confuses things more. But I think that it actually clarifies what's happening with the fish more than it does confusing things because to add to what heidi was saying i think there's also a sense that these are things that these characters have affection for or love or or some kind of connection to you know there's the fish for vardaman means something and he's trying to protect it and he's like his youthful grief is responding to that and for jewel it's the thing that he loves that, that represents his mother to him. And so that, the fact that Darrell recognizes that and says his mother is a horse, you know, you could also say his horse is his mother, you know, there's different ways of putting that. I think it clarifies what Falkner's doing with the images rather than confusing it. Um, but it is now time for story time with Uncle
2: Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about like Heidi's comment that You know, the vultures kind of symbolically are a reminder that death comes for all of us. I used to live on this farm and there was a river that was formed the back border of the farm. And one day, several friends of mine and I went uh, canoeing back on this river. Previous to that, I had been seeing all of these vultures like just for weeks kind of around sunset, just kind of float overhead on their way somewhere. And it was, you know, a little bit eerie my friends and I got on the canoes in this river and we floated toward this dam. And the closer we got to the dam, we got into this kind of swampy area where all these dead trees were. And we discovered that there was basically a confederation of vultures had been arriving at this swamp area for a couple of months. And I bet there were 200 vultures up in these trees facing down toward the river where we were floating. And it was the most ominous thing to hear these birds kind of genuflecting with their feathers and kind of like preening and pruning themselves a little bit, you know, and I kept having to remind myself, these are not aggressive creatures. These feed on carcasses, dead carcasses, not human bodies, because just yeah. They were so symbolically yeah. powerful to have 200 of them kind of loitering over your head while you're floating down the river. It was such an ominous thing.
1: Just kind of waiting for you to no longer be just kind of alive, yeah. to no yeah. longer be a threat.
2: Yeah, yeah, checking their wristwatches every once in a while. Like, we're just waiting for you not to be. You will make us happier when you no longer, longer be is. When you no longer be is.
1: All right, Heidi, anything else you want to add? What's your Super no, Bowl I, pick?
0: The Bengals.
1: No, I know. What's the score? Because of the helmets. What score? The Tim score. said 27-25 Rams. You're saying Bengals because of their helmets because they would defeat Rams, but what's the score?
0: I think it's higher than that based on how they've played this year. Um, I'm going to go with 35-28.
2: Nice. Bengal Cats.
0: <laughs> David, how about you?
1: I think the Rams will win 30 to 24.
0: Okay. Predictions from all of us. I actually like the 25 score because I can see a
1: two-point conversion happening somewhere. Um,
0: I don't like like
1: either of these helmets. In fact, I think it's genuinely bad uniform (laughs) combos. Um, That's another conversation for another
2: day. The Rams uniforms are wonderful. The
1: old original uniforms were. The blue that they use now and that like, their white isn't even white. It's like... Off-white. It's, it's called, like called cream bone. It's not cream.
2: I love it. I love don't it. Don't insult
1: the bone. color cream. They literally <laughs> call it bone. It's pearl. They call it bone. It's not white. It's not even off-white. It's too ugly to be it's actual healthy. off-white. This sounds
0: like a close rant. Ooh, ooh.
1: <clears throat> well, I don't know. That's
0: a close rant, David.
1: Well, I just I just did it. <laughs> that was it.
0: I want to do a close rant on figure skating costumes in the
1: Olympics <laughs> record that anytime so you want many thoughts. record okay. that anytime you want make sure it's a video and, and shoot that over to me um, right we will have to do a uh, what, what's the what's the word for we'll have to do a sartorial close rant episode sometime on, on our various sartorial. things that we're not in favor of in the world of sartorial matters there's got to be a better word for that
2: but
0: sartorial matters is a really good phrase though i want that to close right
2: the sartorial matters episode (laughs) well maybe we'll do that at some point
1: but in the meantime for heidi white for tim mcintosh i'm david kern thanks so much for listening thanks to center for lit and bibliophiles for sponsoring remember to go to centerforlit.com if you would like to learn more about that podcast and what they're doing over there and for my dog who is barking in the background in case you could hear her i am david kern until next time Happy reading.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands.